The nail in the coffin! All right, welcome to the Nail in the Coffin Cleveland Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Valentino. I'm joined, as always, by Travis Uli. Trav, how's it going this evening? Good. Good evening, Tino. So we are recording on Tuesday night, and in a minute, we're going to be joined by Kevin Kleps, assistant editor at Crane's Cleveland Business. Uh, Kevin heads up their sports coverage, does a great job, and uh, I think we'll have plenty of interesting stuff to talk about with him. First, though, Big thank you to everybody who checked out our special episode that we did over the weekend after the Cavs fired David Blatt and promoted assistant Teron Liu uh, to the head coach spot. Um, weren't really sure how well a podcast released on a Saturday afternoon would do, but uh, Trav, lo and behold, uh, the numbers were awesome. So Yes, absolutely. Great to see. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, if you have not checked out that episode, it is still available on iTunes and it's on our website. All right, so uh, let's bring in Kevin Kleps. Uh, Kev, welcome to The Nail. Hey, guys. How you doing? Excellent. Hey, so in your business, uh, when something breaks late on a Friday afternoon, it's commonly referred to as a news dump, but uh, I don't think the Cavs changing coaches is going to sneak past anybody. <laughs> yeah, this wasn't your typical news dump. Like the Browns do some kind of minor move on a Friday that gets everyone riled up. But this was not that, not that kind of transaction. That, I mean – the guys who cover the team on a daily basis seemed like they weren't totally surprised by it, but I still found it kind of shocking just because of where they were at. It'd be one thing if they hadn't won 11 or 13 and if they weren't on pace to win 60. Cause I mean, everyone knew, I mean, you didn't need to be a body language doctor to know that these guys weren't really connecting with Blatt, but just the fact that they fire him for halfway through the season instead of maybe after last season, it just, the whole thing, the time, it wasn't that they did it. It was the timing of it that I thought was really, really goofy. And that's the part that really surprised me. All right. So you are not covering them on a day-to-day basis, like a, a beat writer per se, but you've had some dealings with the front office um, for a lot of the stories that you've worked on. So you've gotten to know some of those guys uh, pretty well, I would say. Were you ever... Um, did you ever think that they would pull the trigger on something like this at this juncture in the season? Could you ever envision that before it happened? No, I really didn't. I mean, you you hear rumblings about uh, how they're getting more and more impatient with with David Blatt, and how I mean, you know, every everyone knows that LeBron hovers over everything they do, and everyone also pretty much assumed that LeBron and Blatt weren't on the same page. But just no, I, I did not see something like this coming in. David Griffin's a pretty measured, rational, very intelligent guy. And just, and that might've been the most surprising thing in all this. In addition to the timing was that news conference he had Friday night where he pretty much put everyone on blast where he did not pull any punches. And then uh, Tyron Lou did the same thing. And when he talked to the media over the weekend saying that they were out of shape and everything else, just the whole thing was just, you would have thought this team was 19 and 20 like they were a year ago instead of 30 and 11. It just, yeah, they, I mean, they stunk against the Warriors, but other than that, I mean, they've been the second or third best team in the league. And the way these guys were talking and acting, it was like they were, uh, 
not even in the top 10. Just the whole situation was really bizarre. How big of a factor do you think, like, the the Cavs, uh, the loss to the Warriors actually was? Do you think that was sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back in terms yeah. of getting them to speed it up, I mean? Yeah, I think the the Warriors are the unfair measuring stick for everything they're doing. And the problem I have with that is, I mean, there's this this is a historically good team that no one saw coming a couple years ago and that you can't, I mean, I don't know what moves the Cavs, the Cavs could make that can counter what Golden State has right now. So, yeah, I think the realization that the way they were playing was never going to be good enough to be Golden State, I think that kind of sped up Griffin's process here where he just felt like we got to do this now instead of waiting till after the season and after the postseason when we're probably not going to beat the Warriors again if we face them. So maybe if we do it now and we get Lou getting these guys going with how I think we should be playing, then maybe we have a chance. But, I mean, it remains to be seen if that's a logical way of looking at it. But just, yeah, I think everything they're doing right now is measured against Golden State and pretty much everything the league is doing right now is measured against Golden State because they're just that good. And they're, like I said, they're historically good. Did you get to watch the game that Golden State played last night against uh, San Antonio? It was on NBA TV after the Cavs game was over. I watched as much as I could. I think I checked out when they were up 10 or 12 in the second quarter because I had early wake up call this morning. But yeah, I watched, I watched what I could and they just, nothing they do surprised me anymore. Steph Curry could, I mean, everything he takes, it seems like a warm up shot. It just, it just, they're, they're insane. They really are. They can do, they can do anything they want to anyone they want. It's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch, but for the rest of the league, it's gotta be incredibly frustrating. Cause I was talking with someone the other day, this, this Cavs team two years ago was good enough to win it all. But I mean, it's, the the Warriors have completely turned the league on its ear, and no one seems like they're good enough right now. Just wondered, like, how long can they keep that pace up? I mean, this is almost unprecedented. I, it seems like it, as long the only thing I can see that would stop them right now with with pace and wins and everything else is an injury. And I mean, Steph Curry used to have that uh, kind of nagging him in the early part of his career, but Fortunately for him and them, he's been healthy the last few years. But that's the only way I could see them slowing down. Because, I mean, they're a young team. It's not like they're the Spurs where they need to rest guys here and there and all that. Or they're the Cavs with LeBron, who's in year 13 and played 45,000 minutes. Then they're not at that stage. Curry and Draymond and Clay Thompson, these guys can play a hundred games and be fine. It might affect them five years down the line, but right now it doesn't affect them at all. The fact that they are such a big, like jump shooting team. I know that that was sort of held against them last year for some odd reason. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why it seemed like a lot of people <laughs> held that against them as though it diminished uh, their title. Um, but that, I mean, the fact that they are big shooters, I mean, that's, that's, that's their bread and butter. It's like, they're not driving. They're not taking hits. They're not going to get as tired and worn out as other guys playing 35, 40 minutes a game. Yep. They're perfectly suited to, <clears throat> to, to win multiple championships in today's game. It just, I mean, they, everything they do is and now that's how everyone wants to play. And that's who everyone wants to be. But do you think the Cavs are a little bit caught off guard by the fact that they took them to six last year? Um, if I still get a little bit annoyed by the non-call at the end of game one, but that's just me dwelling in the past. Um, <laughs> 
I mean, they they gave Golden State a hell of a run without two of their best players. Do you think that the Cavs are a little caught off guard that somehow getting Kyrie and Love back almost feels like they've regressed or or the the gap has gotten larger? I'm sure they're. Yeah, I would th- I would think if you would have talked to the Cavs at the end of last year, they would have felt that they were the better team, and if they were healthy, they would have won that series. But I, <clears throat> I'm not so sure on that, just because of the way Golden State won those last three games. It was I, I don't know why it took them three games to figure it out, but once they figured out that uh, if they played Draymond at the five all the time, and they just didn't play Bogut, and they just didn't play a big guy that 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 the Cavs had no answer for that. Once they did that, then it was over. And I, <clears throat> even if uh, Love was there and even if Kyrie was there, I don't see why they wouldn't have figured that out. They might have even figured it out earlier. Who knows? But I I just, yeah, I'm sure that that frustrates the Cavs because last year seems to be much more winnable than this year. It, it, as strange as that sounds, because the Warriors really haven't. The, they haven't changed a whole lot since last year, just that everyone seems to be much better this year for whatever reason. So getting back to the Cavs then and reading the tea leaves from what David Griffin was saying in his press conference on Friday and some of the interviews he's done since then, Kevin, do you get the impression that there are more moves coming? One part of me says yes, just because of the way he put everyone on notice and the way he made it clear that they're not looking at wins and losses. They're looking at, way deeper and he's in the locker room judging body language and reactions and how much fun they're having and everything else. And he was clearly very disappointed with everything he had been seeing the way he talked. uh, It was like they were 12 and 30, not 30 or 11 and 30, not 30 and 11. But yeah, that part of me makes me think that something's coming, but then there's the realistic view of how limited they are and what they can do just because, a, they don't have the draft picks to trade, which is a big part of NBA trade currency, and B, any move they take on salary-wise would cost them like five times whatever that guy's salary is because of the luxury tax situation they're in. Unless they get somebody to take on a contract, but then you're giving away one of your guys that's going to help you win a title. So I don't know how many moves really make sense for them because of how much I mean, Dan Gilbert's made it clear he'll spend whatever it takes. But I mean, even with that being said, he's $170, $180 million payroll turns into a $220 million payroll. I don't know how realistic that is for anyone, even if you're a billionaire. At this point, even if you go to the notion that money is no object, are you trying to, if you are going to try to make a move, is it something specifically to address the Warriors? Are you still trying to think about the possibility of facing the Spurs in the finals too? I would think it's it's geared toward the Warriors because I might be in the minority here, but I, I would think that they're pretty confident that in a seven-game series they could beat San Antonio. They might say the same about Golden State, but I don't know if they'd be completely honest in saying that. I don't know if they would even believe it, believe it as they were saying it, but I – I think that they would feel pretty good about being the Spurs in the seven game series. And if they had their druthers, I'm sure they would hope they would, they're hoping that the Spurs knock out the Warriors in the West playoffs. But so, yeah, I I think everything they would do or would consider doing would have golden state in mind over everything else. They'll say it's to, to improve their team and uh, do this and that. But 
I'm sure Golden State hovers over what they're doing. So just to shift gears a little bit here, you know, the Cavs, just the latest team here in Cleveland to have a, a pretty radical shift, make a major change to either their coaching staff or their front office in just the past six months, all three of the major teams here in town have had a major move happen. And you're dealing in, in your job um, with those front office types. Can you tell me, is it more difficult for you to establish relationships and, and maintain the lines of communication when it's basically a revolving door with all three teams? It, de- it depends on your role and what you're doing. Like <clears throat> in my position, it's, it's not – is it's not more difficult unless it's like a complete regime change. Like you might see with some of these Browns teams where they, they usher out the GM, the coach, the team president, the CEO, or whoever else is in town or the, the communications director, the marketing guy, and they just completely overhaul everything. <coughs> Excuse me. If it's something like that, then yeah, that definitely makes your job more difficult. But if it's something along the lines of, uh, head coach getting canned that doesn't affect me as much just because my job's different than the uh <coughs> excuse me guys my job's different than a beat writer who is right who's dealing with the coach on a daily basis basis and might use that coach as a source for certain things he's working on so that then that would that would affect you more just because now you're starting over with a new guy who you might not know as well or in the case of with uh, Teron Lou, maybe they know him a little bit, but they haven't had to go to him for certain things. So it, it would affect them more. But with what I do, cause I'm more big picture type stuff, more analytical type stuff. I'm dealing more with the team presidents and the PR and marketing folks and, uh, some of the business leaders and that kind of stuff. I'm not dealing with, uh, I mean, I, I, I've never had one one-on-one conversation with David Blatt. So that, that with my job, it doesn't affect me as much. Let's let's back up then a little bit and and kind of get into your role a little bit more. So you're the assistant editor for Cranes Cleveland Business. So you, I mean, you obviously oversee uh, everything that's going on sports wise, but that's really only part of your job. So can you kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what your typical day and, and everything that you've got your hands in? When I first started at Cranes at the uh, beginning of 2013, I was kind of, I was doing everything. I was doing some sports business reporting. I was, uh, I was actually designing and uh, editing pages, writing headlines, and doing all this stuff for our print edition. In addition to helping some of the uh, other editors, like post stories of the website, and I was just, I was assigning photographers. I was. Pretty much anything you can think of for a, a news publication I was doing, which was good. I mean, it's good to get your hands in as much as possible, especially in today's market where you need to be as valuable as possible. So uh, certainly that's how it, that's how it first started. Then it kind of transitioned in my second year to uh, the bosses started talking about how, I mean, you guys don't, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, just how important sports is in Cleveland and sports business in Cleveland is obviously a huge topic. And it's also kind of an underreported topic just because everyone tends to cover, everyone tends to focus on the day-to-day coverage of the team instead of some of the other stuff going on. So we decided to make more sense to have me do more of that than instead of dividing my time as much as I was before. I'm still doing 
a lot of the other stuff I mentioned, I'm just not doing it as much. I'm a, instead of spending half my week on sports business, I'm spending about 75 to 85 percent of it, which has freed me up to do a lot more with with the big three teams in town. And just I still do some. I don't do as much uh, page designing as I used to, but I still do a lot of story editing and on our deadline days, which are Thursday and Friday, because we're a weekly print publication on Thursdays and Fridays. I do, I, I, I proof pages and edit pages and that kind of stuff, but I don't do as much of the design work as I used to because they've freed me up to do more sports business stuff. So if you've been there for three years and it sounds like your role has, has changed quite a bit. Um, how, has there been a dramatic shift in how sports are covered in general by the media over the last, I don't know, four to five years? It seems like with um, with I mean, Twitter and all this social networking and all this extra stuff that seems to have created a brand new channel, basically, of covering sports, has that um, has that drastically shifted? Um, like how just in general, how media treats the teams around town? Oh yeah, big time. I mean, if you have anything to report, you're going to Twitter first. You're not, unless you're <clears throat> extremely confident that you can write something up and get it posted to the website without anyone else jumping on board and and beating you to the punch. Uh, you're going to put it on Twitter first, and then you're going to follow it up later. But before you do that, you have to make sure you source it and make sure you have everything uh, squared away, so you don't. It's, no sense being first if you're wrong, but uh, yeah, it really has changed what you do because you're, you're, I mean, social media is a huge part of everything you do and, and that it's a good way to promote your work, promote your publication's work and and most publications expect you to do that and it's just part of, it's just become part of everyone's job. That happened uh, three, four, five years ago is when that push really started and now it's even more prevalent now where you see guys and that's Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are as much a part of our job as and some people know writers on more from their work on, from what they do on Twitter than what their, than their actual stories, which is kind of depressing for some of us who like, who really like journalism, but that's just the way it is now. And you just have to adapt and adjust. Is it fair to say that like the traditional guys, the guys who have been maybe in the print business for the last, I don't know, 10, 15, I don't know. How long were you at the Herald? 13 some years, I was at the right? News 13, Herald for, years? yeah, God, 13 years, I think it was. So the guys that have been doing it for that long and have been around for a while, is it is it safe to say that they're probably a bit frustrated with that shift? Because not just because there's more competition, but because um, they got to worry about the guy who is on Twitter and maybe doesn't have that, that I don't, I don't know search for integrity or whatever the whatever you want to call it but he's not gonna go make sure that he confirms a story three times if he hears from one random guy he's gonna go run with it and if he's wrong whatever he probably still gets a few followers out of it there is some of that i think i mean i think anyone who cares about the integrity of the work is going to get a little frustrated with some of that if there's because i mean you could have i mean think about when lebron was uh deciding whether he was going to come here or not and the summer of 2014, just that you had the personal trainer guy, you had the cupcake shop and just the, <laughs> all those people and places became sources. It just, that it just got to be, that was as crazy as I can ever remember Twitter being with 
and Joel all reporting on the plane, Gilbert's plane, and then Gilbert denying that his plane was was in the air and he said he was in his backyard. Just that, that whole time was just as nuts as I've, as I've ever seen it. What a and time just, to be alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just it was entertaining. Sources. The personal trainer guy was telling people for weeks and months that LeBron was coming to Cleveland. But that, I mean, any of us could have said the same thing. It doesn't mean that we had sources telling us that. It, I mean, it could have been, it pretty much was a 50, 50 guess. It was either Miami or Cleveland. So, right. But that was yeah, one of those that ones where he said it. Like... But I think the smart people, the people who, I mean, who know how the how the uh, industry works and who know how sports works, just know that, I mean, that's just the way it is. You're going to have people who try to make a name for themselves, but then that's just the way it is. And, and you just have to roll with it. And there's some frustration there, but you can't let it get you too worked up about it. I will say I'm a little relieved that to this day, he's still just that personal trainer guy. He didn't exactly make a name for himself. I know he scooped up a lot of followers for, <laughs> for a couple of weeks after that, but. Oh man. I just thought that guy's avatar. I put hundred bucks I think a shirtless can... avatar. And I just got a good laugh out of that. I don't think I've, I've seen, I don't, I don't, I never actually followed him on Twitter, so I don't know how active he is on there, but I'm sure he's still claiming to be LeBron's guy. <laughs> so Kev in, this kind of a diverse landscape for sports media now. Can you tell us a little bit more about the stories that you write and what you're looking for when you're getting ready to do your next feature um, and just how you try to carve out your niche and, and bring something different that we're not really seeing elsewhere? Yeah, because because we're Cranes Cleveland's a weekly print pub, we, we print on uh, – it come, the print edition comes out on Monday, so we put the edition to bed on uh, Friday afternoon. So because of that, I mean, it's not – I mean, I do break some news in the print edition, but it's got to be something that we know is going to hold for the weekend. So usually it might be one of those deals where you have a uh, – you talk to somebody and they tell you that they're not going to tell anyone else until the story comes out or something like that. But for the most part, it's – what I do for the print edition is some kind of big picture stuff, like something from a Cavs business perspective, just something they're doing that I know no one else is writing about. Like when they, when they did some of the beacons that they had at the queue, which is the technology that where you check in on your phone and that kind of stuff, or they had some, maybe some kind of new uh, technological offering. I might write something on that or something that the Browns are doing from a biz perspective or, something the Indians are doing with uh, ballpark renovations that I know no one else is on. That's something I would look at for the print edition, something big picture or analytical enterprise, whatever. But then I have for the website, I try to write for that as much as possible. They pretty much give me a ton of leeway with a sports business blog that I write where I can just pick my own topics every day and write about it. So that takes up a chunk of my morning every day where I just, I try to, devote a couple hours to my blog and and start my day that way and then go from there and then try to mix in reporting and stuff for other stories I have going on, whether it's for the print edition or for the website or whatever. So the stories that go on the web that um, are also in the print edition, those are for subscribers only, right? Correct. Yeah. And then everything that's on your blog is free for everybody? No, it used to be that way. And the blogs used to be free for any everyone and then they our corporate office in detroit uh did 
they they we crane the crane family owns a bunch of city publications they own a there's a crane's detroit business or crane there's a crane chicago a crane's new york and then they have other publications like advertising age so they recommended that we do what they do which is you get a few free clicks for anything on the website but then after that you have to subscribe so that became the norm for everything on our site. So the blogs got thrown in there too. So my blog is now, I mean, you get a few free clicks for the month. And then after that, you either have to try some other tricks with like logging in on your phone or logging in on a different browser or whatever else. But other than that, if not, you have to subscribe. It's the, it's the paid subscription model you see more and more places going to now. Okay. So you mentioned they give you a lot of leeway with the blog. Do you try to always make sure you've got some sort of a, a business angle to whatever you're writing? Or do you use that blog space maybe to really kind of expand past that? Yeah, I go past that. I, I try to mix it up. I'll, I'll do business Sundays, but if it's if the Browns are going through some kind of executive search or GM search or they've done something – or something else crazy has happened with Johnny Manziel. I'll, I'll, I have pretty much free reign to write on that. Or if, well, what uh, would ever happen with Johnny Manziel? That guy is a model citizen who leads a very really, quiet and private life. Oh yeah, he had more time. He was on busted coverage again today, which I found amusing. Oh, fantastic. but he's he's unfortunately not going to be a part of our uh, Cleveland sports lives much longer. So, That's but yeah, so if something like that happens, or just yeah, I'll, I, I try to mix it up if there's. Whatever, if there's something like really big going on in Cleveland sports, whether it's the Browns, Cavs, Indians, I usually try to chime in on that. But then I'll mix in on other day, maybe some slower days with some kind of uh, business ang- angle. Like today, I wrote about the the Q uh, in the world rank. The, there's uh, world rankings for arenas where the, just they measure traffic and tific and tickets sold that I knew no one else was really going to be writing on. So I wrote about that. You mentioned the Browns in their front office changes. Uh, let, let's get into that because when you and I had talked last week and we're trying to find a date on the calendar to set up this conversation, originally that was what I was going to have you on to talk about. A very different approach that the Browns are taking this time versus their myriad other regime changes. What are your initial impressions um, of everybody that uh, they've got running the ship now? I understand why people think it's crazy and it i mean it probably is and i understand why most people in the nfl seem to think that it's not going to work and i'm sure a lot of them if if you were if they were going to give their honest opinion like off the record they would say that they hope it doesn't work just because they they like the traditional football models but i I applaud the browns for doing something different i i I actually kind of like it i don't i'm not i'm not saying it's going to it's going to work uh, incredibly well. But I mean, just if, if they've tried the traditional model in the past and it's failed miserably, that doesn't mean that that's a reason to try this, but you need smart guys and you need guys who are going to, who are going to work together and not start backstabbing and just trying to not uh, going for power grabs and everything else. And that's what they've had in the past. Sashi and D Podesta, are incredibly smart guys, but they're also guys who seem willing to, to like hear others opinions and not to think that they're the be all end all of 
of football uh, power and everything else. It just they seem like they're perfectly suited to crunch the numbers and work out scenarios and all that, and then present them to the guys like Hugh Jackson and whoever else is going to be in the personnel department and say, okay, this is what our research says we should do. What do you guys think we should do? And they seem to be the type that would work with those guys and come up with the most logical conclusion instead of just saying, this is how it's going to be and, and deal with it. So I I think it, it could work. I'm not saying it will, but I definitely think it could. Do you think, I guess what's the, what's the general opinion in terms of how, how, I mean, kind of reinventing the wheel here where they're completely restructuring and going away from a hierarchy or format that pretty much every other team in the league follows what's I guess within the the people that follow it from a business standpoint how do they think this this sort of move can translate and improve overall not just the business but the product on the field in the NFL they think it's they think it's nuts they think it's not going to work and the part I the part I question more than the quote-unquote football guy stuff is that Haslam has it set up where they're all reporting to him and Sashi is in charge of the football, the 53-man roster, but Dee Podesta is not reporting to Sashi. He's reporting to Haslam. So Sashi and Dee Podesta are kind of on like an even playing field. Then the head coach is Hugh Jackson's reporting to Haslam too. He's not reporting to Sashi. So that's where I think it could get murky is if you have – like that's what happened before where you had Farmer and Pet at odds and go, who knows what they, were, what they were saying behind closed doors about each other and then it just – spiraled so that's where i think it could be a problem but i think i'm sorry go ahead no you're fine i was gonna say of the people and you said it sounds like majority of the people in the league probably think it's kind of crazy do you think a lot of that is those people who are looking at it and and i mean the nfl is kind of known as a league that just sort of recycles people you get fired from one job you get a similar job at another team (laughs) do you do you think a lot of that is guys who are like wait a minute if this actually works um it, it becomes increasingly hard for me to hold down a job or explain why why someone should give me a new job. Oh hell yeah, those traditional football guys don't want to see don't want to see this work because then that, that could flip everything on its ear. You might have more teams doing this because they're. I mean, analytics in the NFL is nothing new. It's just, I mean, the Browns have this have an analytics crew already that Alex Shiner and those guys brought aboard in uh, two, late 2012, early 2013 after Haslam bought the team. And they've had a handful of guys working in analytics before, and they used a lot of it in business. But I don't know how accepting – from what I heard, it wasn't accepted by uh, Farmer and Petten. But this is nothing new. And, uh, I mean, the Patriots use it a lot. Belichick says he doesn't like it, but I'm sure he uses it. I and mean, they all do. But it's just a matter of – how much it gets used in the football specifics and how willing these guys are to do it. The NFL of all the, of the big three sports has been the most resistant to it because the NFL seems to have the more traditional thinkers where you have, you have the coach who's the football guy and you have the GM who's probably a former player, a guy who's worked in football for 50, 30, 40, 50 years. And it just, that's how it is. And that's how it's always been. It's, it is easily the most traditional of, of the big three sports when it comes to that baseball is pretty laid back and uh, thought of as kind of boring by a lot of the sporting public, but they still have some pretty inventive ways of looking at stuff, especially when it comes to analytics. 
seems like the NBA has certainly become very heavy in, in terms of using advanced data. Uh, you see the Rockets, especially uh, Daryl Morey, the general manager down there. Um, and, and I know he, he's probably the most notorious for it, almost to a fault. But uh, it, it seems like it's a trend that's spreading across the, the NBA as well. Yeah, the NBA, it's it seems to be – it's still most prevalent in baseball because baseball is the, the one at which you could have the most success, you would think, using it just because it's there's so many – I mean, it's a batter pitcher matchup. You have lefty-righty, you have all those scenarios, that, and you have guys with track records who year, year by year live up or come close to doing what they've always done. So it's so much easier to measure. But now with – with uh in the nba with the data tracking it's just it's yeah it's revolutionized the nba too or i mean that if you go to nba's stats website it's incredible the stuff you can find and just the shot charts and how many miles guys are running everything so yeah it's it's getting to be very it's it's used quite a bit in the nba i mean a ton where these guys and it's changing how teams play and the warriors are a perfect example of that they they do exactly what the analytics say you should do. They play small. They play fast. They take a lot of threes. They don't take mid-range jumpers. They they're exactly how the analytics say you should be, and that just that's the way the NBA is now. The NFL's been much more resistant than the other two, but I think part of that, in addition to the whole traditional thing, is it's more difficult to figure out how the analytics work in football because NFL. I mean, a football game is so much more complicated than the other two because you have 22 guys on the field and each of them has their own job. And, and you can say it's the simple thing would be you go for fourth and one in this situation, you go for two points in this situation. Analytics are used there, but with other things like strategy, it's much more difficult to blend it in, at least from what I understand. I think the biggest thing that, that most people wonder is when they hear like, these analytics guys are going to be the ones putting together a roster and they're like, well, how is analytics going to tell you who the, who the right guard should be and things like that? Because it is such, I mean, you look at like an offensive line, they all play off of each other. It's not, it's not an individual sport. Like, I mean, at at its core, baseball is an individual sport. You're not really counting on another guy on your team to, to help you out or do anything for you. If you're up to bat, you're in control. That's it. Um, how do you think, I mean, in, in terms of this, this drastic change that the Browns are making, how, in, I guess from a business perspective, is that easier or harder to sell like to the fans? Because we hear every year sob stories of people who are not going to renew their season ticket and then probably 99% of them do. But, but it seems like it's getting increasingly harder for them to uh, get people to go to the games. Um, I, I know that they sell out a lot, but I can I can speak from experience that there's not nearly as much demand to actually get into the stadium as there used to be. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the, the fact that the TV product is so good. But does this overall change? Is this easier to sell? Like, hey, we're trying something different? Or is it people that look at it more as, hey, they're desperate? Why would I invest money in that? I don't think this, I mean, Sashi Brown and what they're doing with him and Dee Podesta isn't going to <clears throat> isn't really going to affect the fans too much one way or the other as far as whether or not they come back next year. It's it's what they do with Hugh Jackson is going to get people excited. Hugh Jackson is going to get people to want to come. 
to the games next year. And I mean, it depends on what they do in the draft. It depends on what they do in free agency. That's the type of stuff that from a business standpoint is going to get people back in. And for whatever reason, no matter how bad they are and every year they're terrible for the most part, except for a couple of years in the last 17, they stink. And, but for whatever reason, January turns into February, February turns into March and, Somehow they're able to with the draft, and they might sign a couple players that other that people have heard of, like Dante Whitner, even though that it hasn't worked out and stuff like that. Just it gets people back in, and then training camp starts, and all of a sudden people are thinking, "Oh, maybe this is this is the year we finally get better." So let's do it. But last year they finally all of the losing finally caught up to them. Last year the fans weren't sure they didn't sell out multiple games last year, which. I don't. I mean, I'm. It's easier to hide it now than than it used to be because you can buy up tickets and all that kind of stuff. But now that they stopped the blackout rule, teams don't have to sell out in every game. And last year there was at least three Browns games that didn't sell out, which I don't remember happening before. So, and no. I mean, if you were at any of those late season games, that they were dominated by Bengals fans and Steelers fans. So I. They they got to the turning point last year where you start to wonder if it, I mean they're really going to start hurting if uh, if they don't get this turned around here soon. Yeah, I mean I was down there for many of the games, probably probably six or seven. I think I only missed probably one or two in terms of going down and and hanging out and having a few drinks. But I can't. I had zero motivation to stay another three hours down there and and go watch the product that they were putting on the field. And I think you're right on until it actually shows up on the field, they're going to have a difficult time uh, selling any decisions to anybody, I think in terms of making a significant move, particularly in ticket sales and attendance. Yeah. I think, I think they're at that point now where just being the Browns finally isn't good enough. Football's always going to be King here and the Browns are, no matter how good the Cavs are, the Browns are always going to be king in the Cleveland sports market. But they're finally at that point now where that's not good enough to guarantee 68,000 people in the stadium and to guarantee these ridiculous TV local TV ratings that they used to have. That That's not good enough anymore. They, they finally have to, now that they raise ticket prices and now that uh, fans are tired of paying for a product that stinks, they finally have to actually step their game up a little bit because they last year TV ratings, I mean, they were still excellent, but they actually dropped like, I think it was 11%, something like that locally, which for the, for the Browns is unheard of. And that just, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty crazy. That's a pretty telling number. And then you combine that with three, three, at least three games that didn't sell out. That's, that's pretty telling. Yeah. I think they're sort of at the point where people don't feel like even, I don't, I don't know if overall fan, the Browns fans are lesser in number or less passionate, but they don't feel the need or the obligation to go to the games anymore to show their support. Um, it's just financially, it doesn't make sense. I think people have sort of realized this isn't worth paying money for. Well, the problem for them is I mean, the younger generation, a lot of these, a lot of the younger generation just aren't Browns fans. That's just the way it is. These kids who are growing up are, I mean, they all they know is bad football around here so they grow up being rooting for other teams and and uh, you still have the the guys my age and older who are going to be browns fans because their dad was a browns fan and they're going to be that way till they die but there's the the younger generation is not like that at all they're not tied to this team they i mean 
they live here and I'm sure they'd like them to be good, but they're not tied to them like, like their dad is and the older generation mm-hmm. is. They're, they're just, they're say they're saying, show it to me, prove it to me. And I'm not going to, you don't have me just because I live in Cleveland or I live in Northeast Ohio. And the other thing with that is if you're a, a younger fan who's coming up now, I think it's easier than ever to gravitate towards uh, another team and another market just based on all the technology that we have available. Even if you're not a Sunday ticket subscriber, you've still got the Red Zone channel. Um, you've still got so many games now on national TV and special time windows. I mean, it's expanded into Sunday night and Thursday night, and then towards the end of the season, you get games on Saturday night. So you're seeing games from around the league um, on all different nights um, all throughout the year. Yep. Oh, yeah. You're going to see more of that. I think it's fair to say that watching, um, I don't know, like a Packers or a Seahawks or someone like that, who Seahawks particular seems to be that team that's gotten very trendy for young kids. I think most of it is they're, they're pretty good and people like their uniforms, but, but I mean, it's probably more fun to watch the Seahawks five, six, seven times a year than watch the Browns 16 times a year. Yeah. I wonder if it, uh, depending on what happens in the Super Bowl, if you're going to see a bunch of little, uh, Panthers fans uh, in in more areas than just the South, just because of Cam Newton and because of just they're fun to watch and they do the stuff that I mean they take the selfies on the sidelines they do they do the fun dance moves and everything else that uh, kids like to see and I wonder if you're going to see some of that with uh, Carolina fans the Panthers haven't traditionally oh, yeah. been a national team but now with Cam and if you combine Cam and Luke Keekley with uh, with a Super Bowl championship, then you might see more of that. Definitely feels like with, depending on the outcome of the Super Bowl, I mean, Peyton Manning for the last 15 years has been the face of the league pretty much. He gets more endorsement deals than anybody else, and you know, he gets the maximum number of national TV games every year, and his teams are always in the playoffs. And I guess you can make a case for Brady too, but I think Peyton's got a little bit more going on um, off the field, and Cam Newton starting to pop up in commercials all over the place. And I think it's Under Armour that he's with, uh, among others. And now here he is, uh, third or fourth year in the league, and now he's in the Super Bowl. kind of feels like this might be a changing of the guard type moment. Well, yeah, I definitely he, think so. Yeah, him and Russell Wilson, I think, would be the two that would have the most potential to do that. The I NFL the isn't as much of a superstar-driven sport as the NBA is, but those are two guys that, the young guys are young guys and girls are going to really relate to. And those are the guys that you're going to see on commercials and that kind of stuff. Uh, whereas you used to see Peyton before, I think you're going to see more of those guys. With all the endorsement deals that Cam's probably going to get soon. Will he ever top that play 61 with the little kid? Who's going to become <laughs> that his would be impossible player? to beat. That was the best one ever. Still fantastic. <laughs> That's a great commercial. It really is. Never gets old. Hey, um, we, we've, We've talked quite a bit about the Cavs. We've talked about uh, the Browns, uh, Kev, while we got you here. Uh, real quick, a little bit on the Indians. They did quite a bit in terms of renovating Progressive Field last offseason uh, around the outfield area and right field. And now they're working pretty hard at the area behind home plate, right? Is that what the, the big project is this year? Yeah, they're gonna do. They're gonna have like a season ticket holder club behind home plate. They're gonna do a neighborhood, the neighborhood theme that you saw in the right field district last year. You're gonna see 
in the home plate and concourse area this year also. So they're going to have, they're going to bring local restaurants into the fold in that area too. So then you're going to have two different distinct like neighborhood type of thing, neighborhood type of vibes with, uh, last year when they brought the, they brought in melt and, uh, uh, dynamite burgers and that kind of stuff. So you'll have something similar to that now in the home plate area, which sounds like it's pretty cool. Cause that, the area under the overhang, those tickets were great value. If you wanted to, if you were looking for uh, a good view and good prices, but it just, with the overhang, it just, it, it cut off the whole view of the park and it just, it just, it was very antiquated. So I think what they're doing is, is smart whether or not it brings people in i just i have my i have some big time doubts just nothing i just nothing they do seems to get people excited no matter it's it's kind of sad really do you have any theories as to why that's the case because it seems like whereas with the browns they're losing all the time and it's easy to say well they're putting a bad product on the field i mean the indians i know they're not winning championships but they're not bad they've had um plus 500 seasons each of the last three years. I mean, they had a yep. playoff appearance somewhat recently here. I think it was the, uh, in 2013. I mean, they're putting a pretty decent product out on the field, and by all indications, they should be in the mix for the division again or at least the wild card again this year. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they on the field, they, they got a team that, I mean, would it wouldn't totally – if you told me that they were going to win championship in the next two years, it wouldn't totally surprise me. I just – they have with that pitching, you have a chance to to win it all. Just their problem is that they're when they did, when they were selling out and when they had everything going, it was Mark Shapiro told this to me numerous times. It was just the perfect storm. You had the Browns, the Browns were leaving, and the Cavs stunk, and you had a brand new ballpark opening that people were just excited about and you also combine that with this once in a lifetime merging of young prospects who are all like coming up and getting really good at the same time it just it was the perfect storm of storm of events that just led to this tremendous run and unrealistic expectations for baseball in this market for the next 20 30 years i'm just it's never going to be that way again. I, I, even if they're, I mean, they could be ninety-five and sixty-seven this year. They're not going to, they're not going to sell out half their games. I just that's just the way it is. They're, well, I think they have two problems. One is, I mean, in addition to all the stuff we just talked about, one is they keep getting off the slow starts, which just kills them. I just not, waiting until August and September to get going has really hurt them the last few years. Even the year they made that the playoff run, they didn't really, really get hot until August and September. And by then you start high school football starting up and the Browns are in training camp and getting ready to start the preseason. And just around here that people's minds start going toward football season and the kids going back to school and all that stuff. They still root for the Indians. They'll still watch them on TV, but they're not as likely to go to the games. It just, that's just the way it is around here. And that's the way – that's a battle that a lot of different baseball teams fight, but Indians more so than others. They need to get off to a hot start, and I <clears throat> I don't think they're going to do this, but I think it would help if they would – they they shouldn't go wild in spending because, I mean, I don't I don't think they would get their money back, and no, no owner wants to lose a ton of money. But 
I mean, if they just get the payroll instead of in the high 80s, uh, get it to 100, 105 million. Try that and invest in some of these. Don't get a $20 million a year free agent, but get a mid-level guy that's not on the downside of his career. I mean, that might that might help too, but I don't know how much it would help because I don't know how excited people are about baseball anymore in, in Cleveland, but I just, uh, they got to try something different. I, I have a theory and I want to run it past you um, just from the, the business side of it and trying to get people through the turnstiles. I think the Indians do a lot of good things and I like them and I'm going to be going down there again um, to several games this year. Uh, the one thing that they do that makes me scratch my head a little bit is I felt like and I, I've, I have continued to feel like through at least the last decade or so, so much of their marketing is around everything other than, Hey, we're a good baseball team. It's come down and enjoy um, the, the, the different beer stands that we have or the right field district or all these other things. It's like they've made such an effort to insulate themselves from the trouble that would come from having a bad year on the field that it has almost stunted their ability to actually market the players that they have and, and help fans really build a connection with some of those guys. Yeah. But I think they've got some guys, especially with like Francisco Lindor that just came up um, last season and, and a guy like a Michael Brantley or a Jason Kipnis. I mean, they've got some guys that I think are really relatable and are fun to watch. And it doesn't really seem like that's the first thing that you're hearing about when you hear an Indians commercial on the radio or see one on TV. Well, Lindor's, Lindor's the guy that could really change the dynamic because he's got that personality. He's the type that fans gravitate to and they're really excited to watch, and he's a hell of a lot of fun to watch. So he's the guy that might be able to flip that dynamic for them. But, I mean, in their defense, I mean, you're not going to – there's not so much – there's only so much marketing you can do for Corey Kluber. I mean, he's a great pitcher and he seems like a great guy, but, I mean, he's just – there's only so much you can do there. Kidness is a fun, interesting guy, but the a problem a lot of these baseball teams have is it's not like you're marking LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love. It just in baseball, it just it's totally different. Fans just for whatever reason, this is a baseball problem. This isn't a Cleveland problem. They just don't, and there isn't really that superstar or that draw. These guys don't bring people to the park. You go to the park because. You like the experience. You are you like watching baseball, and hopefully you have a good team to watch who's in first place or in contention and that kind of stuff. That's what's going to get you there. And then if you have the extra specials and promotions and all that kind of stuff, that's just part of baseball. I mean, if you look at if you look at social media and baseball, and Mike Trout has barely a million followers, I think, and just. I'm last I checked. I don't know if this is still the case, but it might be Nick Swisher had more followers than anyone else in baseball. That tells you a ton. I mean, in his follower count pales in comparison to the other sports that just baseball is not a star driven sport. So it's harder to do, to do that kind of marketing because you don't have the guys that you can market. It just, but Lindor is the type that could help the Indians a lot in that regard. And if he continues doing what he did last year, that could really be big for them. That's very fair in terms of uh, being a, a baseball issue more than just an Indian specific issue. Cause I mean, I could just tell you personally, like back in the mid nineties, I, I knew 
pretty much. I, I, I could name half the guys in the lineup of every team in the American League, whereas now I don't know half the guys in the All-Star game. And well, Yeah, think about it. I mean, the guys <laughs> think about all the guys who have, like, the big-time contracts and who are, the like, regarded as the best players. I mean, how many casual fans know who Miggy Cabrera is? As terrific as he is. I know who he is put, for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, he murders exactly. us. And the Indians fans know, and if you follow <laughs> baseball – I mean, if you follow baseball, you know, but casual fans don't know Miggy Cabrera. And just trying to think off the top of my head, some other guys who have signed big deals. I mean, Bryce Harper kind of transcends, Mike Trout transcends, but there aren't many of those guys. I mean, Clayton Kershaw, how many casual fans know who Clayton Kershaw is? And he, he's going to go down as one of the best pitchers ever. And most people don't know who he is. It's just that's a baseball problem. All right, one more question um, on the renovations at the park that we were uh, talking about a few minutes ago. You had mentioned Mark Shapiro. He left um, late last season, or I think officially he wrapped up after uh, he wrapped up with the Indians after the season was over. He had a pretty direct hand in a lot of those renovations, the Phase One and the Phase Two, right? Yeah, he did. He was he was kind of he wasn't the point man for what they were doing, but everything that they did went by his desk where he was, he was involved in it, but they have, they had guys who were leading like all the planning and everything. And then they would run stuff by Mark. So, I mean, yeah, he, he had a, had a, had a decent role in it, but he, I mean, this isn't something that now that he's gone, uh, I don't, I mean, his impact is going to be felt, but it, I don't think it's going to, it's going to like uh, really curtail any kind of efforts they would have for ballpark stuff. Who's going to pick up, the the responsibilities he had in that process now they have a guy named andrew miller who's one of their uh executives and he's one of their uh analytic and strategy guys he was one of the point men <clears throat> he's heavily involved and they have uh some other uh guys in the front office that most people would have no idea who that they are but they just they have a bunch of their front office has a lot of smart uh engaging guys who would uh we're pretty good at that kind of stuff. And, uh, would, uh, and from a business standpoint, like non ballpark related, from what I've been told, Paul Dolan is going to kind of pick up Shapiro slack where he's going to have more of a day to day role. And that's the way it's going to be going forward. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, uh, shakes out because Paul isn't the most visible type, uh, when it comes to ownership. A room full of uh, very smart business guys. Uh, sounds like the type of crew that would read Crane's Cleveland Business. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Trav, do you have any more questions for uh, Kevin? No, I think that's a good place to stop. Excellent. Well, hey, uh, Kevin Claps, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fun hour. No problem, guys. I enjoyed it. All right. Uh, everybody out there, you can follow and you should follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin Kleps. And um, you can catch uh, all of his uh, stories on uh, Crane, is it cranescleveland.com. Is that, do I have the yep, URL right? You got it. All right, yep. cranescleveland.com. All right. So as a reminder, as always, everybody, you can get all of the episodes of our show at thenailpodcast.com. And if you're an iPhone or an iPad user, we encourage you to subscribe to the show on iTunes. So that should just about do it for us this week. Once again, our thanks to Kevin Kleps. Um, for Travis Uli, I am Tom Valentino. This has been The Nail in the Coffin, and we will talk to you again next week.
Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at Pit Pass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.